Well, good morning again. For those of you that are regulars, I don't want to frighten you. I probably won't be wearing a tie again, but I thought it was a special day. So I got a new tie. Hope it's not too scary for you. Um, I actually own a couple of suits, too. So if you want to see me really decked out, come to a wedding sometime. Uh, you'll get to enjoy that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, which is in page uh, 910 or on page 910 in the Black Bibles you'll see in front of you. So there's some Black Bibles nearby if you don't have one and want to kind of follow along and know where we are. Several weeks ago, I had been a pretty busy day. I had preached our normal three services, and we had a newcomer's class that was going on. So I had a class after our third service. been a long day. I didn't get to take a nap that afternoon after lunch. I was busy helping my son with the project. So just a a long day, good day, I love Sundays, I love preaching, but a long day. I was tired, I was ready to rest, and I was coming home after the three services and after the newcomer's class, uh, ready to just jump in bed and go to sleep. It was about 9.15, got home to my house, and when I opened the door, I heard uh, loud giggling and laughter and walked into my kitchen to find six teenagers sitting on the floor laughing and singing and joking and telling stories. Um, and in that moment, that just a moment before that, I had deeply wanted rest, all of a sudden, the party that was happening in my kitchen became infectious, and I kind of woke back up. Does that ever happen to you? I think that might be a sign that I'm slightly more extroverted than introverted, right? Because when a party's happening, I, I wake up a little bit, um, and the text that we're looking at this morning is a text where outsiders find God's people partying, so to speak. Um, this amazing thing had happened where the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples of Jesus. He had just uh, risen from the dead, spent time with them, and then gone to heaven to be with the Father. And he said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come in power. Well, the Holy Spirit did come in power, so much so that they were partying and celebrating the great, mighty, saving acts of God in multiple languages, so that the people that were visiting Jerusalem at the Passover time, or at the, excuse me, at the Pentecost time during that festival, were hearing the words of God in all their different languages. And it was really an amazing thing. It was a really quite a party, and you would think it would be infectious, just like when I came home and found a party. I kind of woke up, and I was ready to celebrate, but it, it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes when we find people celebrating in a world of brokenness and pain, we're skeptical. Sometimes when we find people testifying to God's goodness and his bigness and his mercy and his grace, but we know that we've been hurt and abused and life is hard and we may be dying with some new disease or we may be struggling with some broken relationship, we're skeptical about the party that's taking place. And so the text we're going to look at this morning is an explanation of why it's worth it to celebrate. Why do Christians party? Why do we think this day is special? And why do we every Sunday celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because we, we think it really happened, and we think it really does change everything. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41. Um, really what I'll do is I'll just read the first few verses, and then we'll read the rest of them as we move along through the morning. So starting in verse 22, Peter is giving them an explanation of why they're celebrating God's saving acts. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The disciples were celebrating because Jesus could not be held by death. Let me pray for us and we'll look at the rest of the verses in Peter's sermon here. God, we ask for your help this morning and we confess a skepticism, God. We confess that there is a part of our hearts that wants to hold back from celebrating the goodness in life because we see so much pain and so much death and so much evil. So I pray that your word would be met by your spirit this morning so that we would, we would see you and we would see what you've done. So God, we ask that you would give us faith. God, we pray as the man that Jesus healed, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As I was thinking about the explanation of this party, I was remembering in another story, The Hobbit. Any of you seen the movie or read the book, The Hobbit? Um, at the beginning of the story, these dwarves are all excited to go recapture their treasure. That's basically a summary. And they show up at this hobbit's house. And hobbits are known for being people that love comfort and good food and security. Not unlike us today, right? They like comfort. They like security. They like good food. They like sitting back, kicking back on their couch and relaxing. But these Dwarves are having a party in the main character's house. And there's part of him that wants to get excited, and there's part of him that's very annoyed that these people are inviting him into an adventure. So I just want to challenge you this morning, knowing that there are some of you that are excited about the possibility of hope, and there are some of you that are very annoyed, and you just think, this is just one more reason to dress up. It's just a, it's just a holiday. It's just a tradition. There's really no reason to hope. I, I want to plead with you this morning that history tells us there is real reason to hope. And the real reason we have is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. I'm a person just like you. I've been hurt just like you. I've been kicked when I've been down. I've, I've gone through terrible things just like you. But I've found reason to hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It gives me hope that sin and death have been defeated. And although we haven't seen the completion of the story yet, we've seen the climax of the story in Jesus' resurrection, and it changes everything. The, the first thing that I want us to look at as we move through this sermon of Peter's in Acts chapter 2 is that the resurrection changes our mistakes. It changes the mess that we've made. It changes what we've done to make this broken world more broken. If you look again at the verses I just read, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, granted, the men at the time were much closer to the crucifixion of Jesus than we are. So I would argue that there might be more reason for him to say, you killed Jesus. But theologically, we understand that all men are sinners and that the death of Jesus is not just something we can blame on Adam and Eve for disobeying God in the Garden of Eden. And the death of Jesus is not just something we can blame on the Jewish leaders or on Pontius Pilate back in the first century AD. 
The death of Jesus is our problem. It's something that we did. And so, as I said, I might grant that he's talking to people that were really physically there at the time. He's also speaking to us. This is a mess that we made. When we look at the brokenness in the world, we don't get to say it's because of those other people. When we look at the mess that the world is, we have to say, I am a part of this problem too. I am a part of this problem too. Solzhenitsyn was a uh, political dissident during the old Soviet, uh, Soviet Union, and he argued that the line between good and evil doesn't run between countries as if this tribe is good and that tribe is bad, but the line between good, good and evil runs between every human heart. We've all contributed. We've all broken the world a little more. And what I want you to understand is that doesn't mean I'm not sympathetic to those of you who have had great evil perpetrated against you. My sympathies are with you. I understand that some of you have been um, mistreated in unspeakable ways. And that is uh, offensive to God that you were treated that way. But I also know that the human condition is one in which when we're treated in evil ways, we don't just respond in kindness and grace and perfection. We add to the mess. And so the problem with the world is not just the problem out there. The problem is the problem in here. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's this uh, regular kind of viral set of pictures that goes around online. Um, You've probably seen multiple versions of this, but it's messes that uh, dogs make and messes that kids make. Have you all ever seen pictures like that? Um, So you've probably seen multiple varieties of this. I have a picture of a mess that some kids make. Uh, They found a can of paint, white paint. And when they found the can of white paint, they painted themselves. They painted the floor. They painted the leather couch. And they painted the flat screen TV. Um, This is one of those moments as a parent when you want to laugh, cry, and scream all at the same time, right? And I give you that picture to remind you that that's, that's basically where we all live. And we're not the parent walking in on it. We're the kid that's made the mess. We're the ones that have made a mess of this world. And so as much as you might devoting, be devoting yourself to trying to make it better, you've, you've got to recognize, as Peter says here, you crucified and killed this Jesus. It's because of our sin that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. He didn't just die for the sins of people that aren't in church on Easter Sunday. He he died for the sins of the world. He died for the sins of mankind. He died for all of us who are all sinners. Every kind of man, every kind of woman, none of us can escape. We're all guilty before a righteous God. Not because God is grumpy, but because God is perfect. And before a perfect God, all of us stand condemned. None of us measure up. None of us, if you want to look at it this way, are as kind and as beautiful as we wish we were. And so Jesus died on the cross for those sins. It's a really important step for us to come to terms with this reality that we are guilty. There's a little escape hatch you might have seen in in verse 23 that might have made you think, oh, I can wiggle out of this one, right? One of the most common reasons that people like to use 
Um, one of the most common excuses that people like to use to not believe in God is that there is evil in the world. And verse 23, Peter says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So a lot of people see that as an escape hatch. Oh, okay, it's not my responsibility. God did this. This was God's plan. If God's in charge, why is there evil in the world? You've probably heard the argument before. You've probably thought that argument yourself. And the biblical answer is, that may be true. God may have done this as a part of his plan to save the world, but we're still responsible. And right here in one verse, those two ideas that God created and governs the world and has a plan and is God, it's right there with, and you killed Jesus. So it's part of his plan, and it's part of our responsibility. Sin is always our responsibility, but God gives grace. God gives so much grace that God actually uses our sin to to reverse sin and death in the world. And, And he takes the consequences of our sin upon himself. So he doesn't say, Uh, you're not responsible, it's all my fault, so I'll fix it. He says, it's all your fault, and I'll fix it. So God, in his foreknowledge, in his definite plan, it says, uses our sinful choices to take care of the sin problem in the world, to forgive our sins, so that when Jesus died on the cross, he was punished in our place. And when he rose from the dead, he proved that his atonement was successful that he set us free from sin and death. There's a new song on the radio called um, Black Sun. And it's by a a group called Death Cab for Cutie. I don't know if y'all have ever heard of them. Weird name, but great group, okay? Uh, And they've named their new album Kintsugi, which I don't know any of you practice the ancient art of Kintsugi here? Nobody. Okay, good. I can talk about it like an expert then. Kintsugi is this ancient Japanese ceramic art where you take broken vessels and you repair it with gold or silver or platinum. Here's a picture. So you take a broken vase, a broken bowl, a broken piece of china, and you repair it, you fill the cracks with silver or gold or platinum, making the dish that may have been ordinary before now extraordinary. And the crack and the brokenness becomes not just a part of the history of the vessel, but helps it to be more beautiful than it even was before. I think this is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. Our real sinful choices have broken us and broken those around us. And and Jesus infuses himself into our situation so that he takes our brokenness and makes us into something more beautiful than we were before dying for our sins, not exempting us from responsibility, but through his definite plan and foreknowledge, taking what's broken in the world and reversing it and making it something far more beautiful than it was before. As he describes the story of the song Black Sun, the lead singer says, to me the idea of a black sun has multiple meanings. The black sun could be an eclipse where one thing eclipses another. The sun is supposed to be a radiating light on the world, but in this instance, it's blacked out. We've all been that at some point in our life, when we're supposed to be shining upon someone, giving them support, but for some reason, we don't do that. He wrote the song about his own divorce, and basically he's saying, it was my fault. I was responsible. I was supposed to be radiating light and hope and love in this relationship, but instead I caused an eclipse, and I made it worse than it ever should have been. 
So he said the song's basically about himself. He says, I am the black sun, and the song is as much an indictment of myself as anything. So that brings us to the second point of what Peter is trying to say in the sermon, that the resurrection changes our stories. It changes the mistakes we've made. It changes the mess that we've made. But it also changes our story, the stories that we tell, the stories that we've been told since we were a child, the fairy tales that we grew up with, and the Old Testament promises and prophecies that we dare to hope in. It changes all these stories. It makes them real. If you go on and read in chapter 2, verse 24, we get this resurrection punch in the story where Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Pangs are a word uh, usually used for uh, birth pangs, the pain of delivering a baby. Apostle Paul uses this in a lot of places, especially in Romans chapter 8. He talks about this groaning that we have as we're longing for God to finish what he started. It's kind of like the delivery of a baby, not that I would know, but I hear it's very painful. And then when the baby's there, you quickly forget the pain, or at least relatively forget the pain, right ladies? There's joy at what new life is there. And this is kind of this mixed metaphor that we have with Jesus dying, but those pangs of death could not hold on to him. There's birth to new life. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the first fruits, that by faith we'll follow him, that by faith death will not be able to hold on to us either. So it tells us God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, this is King David of the Old Testament, writing in the Psalms as a prophet, promises, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's saying... This is definitely a prophet, a prophecy, because David's dead. This is about someone else. This is about a son of David. This is about another greater king that is prophesied to come. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So again, he brings it back to their guilt. All right, you crucified him. You're responsible. But through your sin, through your mistakes, God is taking the best fairy tale the world has ever known and he's making it true. The reason we love fairy tales, the reason we love our favorite movies, the reason we love our favorite stories is because it points us to something beyond the reality we live in now. The best stories are part reality and part hope. The worst stories are all hope or all reality, right? And you might like those kind of varieties of stories. Um, I forgive you. It's okay. 
The best stories have reality. They connect with the world we live in. The world is hard. Life is difficult. It's gritty. And they still give us hope. And the Old Testament prophets, like the best stories that we love, tell us, yeah, life is hard. Life is full of sin. Life is full of death. We fail. The people out there fail. The people in my own family and tribe fail. I fail. But God will have victory over our failures. The resurrection takes our stories and makes them better. The resurrection takes these prophecies and makes them true. These prom- promises, these prophecies, these Old Testament, Old Testament stories that we dare to believe in, we have reason to believe in now because of the resurrection. I have a picture of a father and son reading stories together, and I want to encourage you two things. Dads and moms, read good stories to your kids. Second thing, read the Bible to your kids. I'd say both are good. Both are helpful. Read good stories because it fuels our imagination. It gives us uh, an ability to think outside of ourselves and outside of the place we live. But also read the Bible because the Bible, it's full of the stories that have come true. It's full of the stories that have come true. So teach your kids to have an imagination. Read them great stories. Read them fun stories that help them to hope and dream. But also read them the Bible because it's, it's the fairy tale that's true. It's the one that's real. It's the one that's rooted in reality. And it's so good for our soul to see all the stories that we, from day to day, dream and wonder whether they can really be true or not. In the resurrection, we're told, yes, we will conquer death. We will come back to life. My question for you with your own personal story is, what are the stories that you're telling? Think about the days that you have a really good day, a really good day. Think about the days that you have a really bad day. What's the little story that you're telling in your mind? What's the, the recording that's playing over and over? When you have a bad day, so often you catch yourself saying, oh yeah, that's how it always goes. I knew I couldn't trust them. I knew I couldn't trust that. I knew this is the way it was going to be. Do you ever find yourself playing those songs in your head? Sometimes, though, on the flip side, when we have a good day, we might play that in our head on the opposite side, like, yeah, I knew I could do it. I'm awesome. How about that? You ever play those kind of stories? You don't have to raise your hand. I know we can keep it a secret. We often replay the wrong stories in our head. The resurrection shapes the true story and helps us to retell it properly. The true story is neither extreme. It's neither everything's bad and then we die and I'm awesome. Neither one of those stories is true, right? There's a a reality to both sides of it. The world is broken and because of what Jesus has done, I can be seen as awesome in the eyes of the Father. He delights in me because Jesus took my sin on the cross because Jesus gives me resurrection life. The Father delights in me. I'm his child. He is pleased with me. That's a good story. It's not all the way life is terrible. It's not all the way I'm awesome. There's a little bit of both of those realities in the true story. The resurrection changes our stories. The last thing that we see as Peter wraps up his sermon is the resurrection changes our direction. Changes our direction. If you pick up in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So those listening were cut to the heart. What happens is the Holy Spirit takes the words you hear from Scripture 
and it makes it real deep down. And you say, yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The resurrection changes our directions. First, they're cut to the heart. They realize this is true. This isn't just made up. This is reality. This, this connects with the world I live in. This connects with all my deepest longings and the worst painful realities of where I live. It's true. Secondly, they're cut to the heart because they realize their own guilt. We've done wrong. I can no longer blame the problem on my parents. I can no longer blame the problem on my boss. I can no longer blame my problem on the people down the block. But I'm the problem. And I need a substitute. I need a Passover lamb, a perfect substitute like Jesus to take my place. They're cut to the heart. And Peter says the response is repentance. Literally in the Greek, that's a changing of mind, but that changing of mind that we call faith always results in a change of life. People begin to follow Jesus. So this doesn't mean mental assent merely or alone. It doesn't mean just saying new idea. I think that idea is true. This means you're cut to the heart and you follow Jesus. Trusting in him alone, not in your following, You're not trusting in how strongly you follow, but because you're trusting in him, you will follow. So baptism is the way that Christians identify themselves with Christ. Baptism is the way we say, the old me is dead, the new me is trusting in Jesus. And Peter says, repent, turn, follow Jesus. Join the party in his church. Be a part of what God is doing in the world. The other day I was going to visit some babies in the hospital I think on April 1st, we had three babies. I mean, maybe more than that, but I didn't realize there were two that I was able to visit that day. Uh, One was born much later that night, and I missed. But we had two babies. Our church has babies so fast, I only get to see like a fourth of the babies in the church. So if you've had a baby recently and I didn't come to see you, I'm sorry. Um, You guys just are having so many. I can't keep up. But two, on the same day, I was trying to get to Metroplex Hospital, and there was a detour. I was so frustrated Do you ever have this happen to you where you're trying to get somewhere and you know you only have a certain amount of time allotted and then the the road is shut down, there's a line of cars, there's a wreck, there's a detour. For for whatever reason, you're taken off course. Has that ever happened to you? Anyone? No one. Okay, that's weird. Just me. All right. A few of you. Okay. (laughs) This was happening to me the other day and I was was so frustrated. I'm usually kind of a stop and smell the roses guy. If, If you know me closely, you know I'm almost never on time because I do get distracted very easily. But for some reason, when I'm in the car, I just have this idea that I can get there right now and I should be there and I get really frustrated about time issues when I'm in the car. And I think nothing should slow me down, but there was a detour, a, a turn that knocked me off my agenda and made me have to go a different direction. Made me a little late, made me have to take roads I didn't want to take. 
made me zigzag around five other roads I didn't want to take before I finally found a way to get over there. The point is that the resurrection changes our direction. And some of you may be here this morning not wanting to go that way. And I understand. And I would tell you, when I first started following Jesus, I didn't want to follow Jesus either. And what changed me was the reality that the road was closed. I couldn't go down that road anymore. It just wasn't there. It was a road to nowhere. I was cut to the heart, and I realized my only hope was Jesus. And I gave Jesus one of the worst uh, confessions of faith I think anyone could give him. I said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, even though I know it's going to ruin my life. <laughs> kind of proud of myself and condemning of him all at the same time. I was cut to the heart. Jesus, I know you died for my sins. I know I owe you my life. I know you're the only road I can go down. But kind of like the other day when I was trying to get somewhere on a certain road, I was annoyed that I had to change directions. But Jesus picked me up as I was going on that new road, and he taught me day by day that I could trust his grace. He taught me that that the other road was worth it. And I want to encourage you that it it still is. At first, you you may just think, I want to finish my agenda. I want to go down the road I'm already going down. And I want you to understand, just like Peter said, it said, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. There's a reality that is not politically correct to say anymore these days. And that reality is not just that Jesus is full of grace and love for you, but the flip side of that is a life without Jesus is hell. It's separation from God. It's It's pain, it's corruption. So what I want you to hear is Jesus is coming to you in love saying, don't drive off the cliff, that road is closed. Follow me. It's going to go much better for you. It's going to go much better for you because I love you more than you love yourself. So I would implore you just as Peter did in that first sermon in Acts, save yourselves from that closed road, follow Jesus, pursue him, One of my favorite resurrection passages is in the Gospel of John, and we'll wrap up with this. In the Gospel of John, uh, we're told that Jesus' friend Lazarus was very sick. And in this story, Jesus was told by messengers, Lord, your buddy, your best friend is sick and he's dying. We need you to come heal him. And it says Jesus delayed a couple of days. He purposefully didn't go straight to Lazarus. By the time he got there, Lazarus was dead. And we talk a lot of times about the discipline of Scripture memorization. I want to give you a great Scripture to memorize. It's John 11.35. It says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. You probably already have it memorized, right? Jesus wept. That is so important. God in the flesh wept for his best friend who was being gripped by the pangs of death because it's not the way things are supposed to be. I want you to understand that Jesus sees you in your pain and he weeps over you. And Lazarus' best, not best friend, Lazarus' sister, said, Jesus, if you had been here, he would not have died. And again, so many of us us say that, right? We say to God, God, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. God, if you had been awake, if you hadn't been asleep at the wheel, I wouldn't be going through this pain. I wouldn't have lost my job. I wouldn't have lost my friend. I wouldn't have lost my health. 
I wouldn't have lost my money. Where were you? And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Mary said, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. She's like, I've been to Sunday school, but he's dead now. And again, we've all had that wrestling match with God, right? Yeah, 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 I know heaven's coming, but I'm suffering now. And Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. It's not so much about a future state, although, again, she was theologically correct. That day is coming. There will be no more tears, no more pain. But Jesus' point is we find the resurrection power in him. Paul says, through our sufferings, we can know the resurrection power of Jesus right now. Right now. And just to prove it, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Amen. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. It changes not only our future, where we will rise again, just like Mary said, Sunday school answer, it changes now. It changes now. In a world full of suffering, Paul says to know Jesus in the midst of suffering is to know the power of his resurrection. We can live with hope now because the resurrection is true, and not just because it's an idea, but because it's a person. And that person is Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you've proven your love for us through Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply your word to our hearts so that we would be quickened. I pray for those here that are going down the other road off a cliff, that they would turn, that they would repent. They would turn and trust in you, trust in the provision that you've given us through your son dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead to give us new life. God, help us to trust. I pray for those that, like me, are skeptical. I pray that they would come to you with what little faith they have. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. We pray that you would make this so for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen.